amazing some things we come across in researching and studying for this series on the attributes of God. Not everybody here, but a fair number of us remember Art Linkletter. When you used to do this show with the kids, kids say the darndest, can I say it in the pulpit? Kids say the darndest things. And I came across a little piece in my file the other day where you noticed one of the kids that he was dealing with on this particular show was, was drawing, and he asked, he said, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. Art Linkletter said, but we don't know what God looks like. The little boy said, you will when I'm finished. <laughs> well, there's a sense in which that's what's happening each and every week as we deal with the attributes of God. We'll never know completely God. We'll never fully understand him, never fully be able to picture him until we meet him face to face. But each week we get a glimpse, and we hope that by the time the series is done, we have a much fuller picture of our God. To that end, we think this morning of the fact that God is self-existent, and we are going to use a number of passages, but the three we'll read ahead of time are, first of all, from Genesis, the first two verses, the opening two verses of the Bible. We'll read from Isaiah 40, and then also from Revelation 1. When you take your Bibles, it'll also be on the screen, but we'll begin with Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Let us hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now towards the middle of the scriptures, we've come to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 is a long chapter. I recommend you read the entire chapter later on today, but we're going to pick it up at the 12th verse of Isaiah 40. God is speaking through Isaiah. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. 
And then this application. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And then to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. May God bless this reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord God, so rich is your word, so far beyond our human comprehending, not only your word, but you. So speak to us now. Transform the words that are spoken into the power and presence of your spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. In the beginning... God. Actor Michael J. Fox did a series of movies under the theme of Back to the Future. And the story was that a friend of his had invented a time machine which enabled him to go back in time and perhaps change the history that had already been lived out. Now we know that that's impossible, but there is a hidden truth in there, and it is that if we want to have a positive impact on our present and our future, we need to go back in time, back to discover where everything began and what it's all about. Because if we have no roots in the past, we can't grow a healthy future. We need the perspective of the past. And so this morning, we go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God and God alone. Only God. No one and nothing else around. God is self-existent. He depends on nothing, on no one else, for his existence. He exists by his own power. No one made him. No one caused him or created him. We know we're not self-existent, but God is. Therefore, it's hard for us to understand what it means 
But anything God does, He does by His desire and His choice. He doesn't need to ask anyone or anything else for advice or help. And let's not forget that the Bible does not try to trace the origin of God. It simply states, God is. In the beginning, God. Now the Israelites knew God in an intimate way before they ever heard those words of Genesis 1. They had a history with God which enabled them to accept these words without question. It was their history with God that was the main spark for their belief in God. There were their whole life centered on God's calling them forth from slavery in Egypt. They believed the name that God gave to Moses, that God is the I Am, which literally means I exist, the self-existent one. God is an uncreated essence. And Israel interpreted all of her life and everything that happened in light of this great act. In fact, they saw all the events of life, all the circumstances that they were involved in as related to the activity of God. Failures and defeats they saw as God's punishment because of his anger on them. And any successes they had and victories were signs that that God was in fact blessing them and they were living correctly. It's also important to know that the word for God that is used in the beginning, God, is Elohim. In the Hebrew, it's plural. God is self-existent as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said, John 8, 58? Before Abraham was, I am. And we just read in Revelation 1, 8, God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And then at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, Jesus takes those words for himself and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Before the beginning of time, as we know it, Elohim already was. He had no origin. He is eternal. Always there. Always will be. They said that's hard for our finite minds to comprehend, but this great foundational truth can be accepted by faith, and we can believe it through faith. With a psalmist, we can say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And from this perspective of faith, we can affirm that Elohim is separate from all things, and yet He's connected to all things. All of the things that exist are related to Him and from Him. The universe and everything in it is only understood in relationship to Elohim's divine will and plan. But here's where my mind began to raise some questions. So, Elohim is self-existent. What does he do with his self-existence? Genesis says, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created. It's not my intent today to deal with science versus theology. Science attempts to deal with 
the how, the Bible deals with the who and the why, and that's our focus this morning. The author of Hebrews summarizes it well in the beginning of the 11th chapter of his epistle. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith we affirm that indeed the universe is not some kind of cosmic accident, but an expression of divine will. Boy, did the psalmist believe it. Twice, in 14.1 and 53.1, he said, Only a fool says there is no God. Pretty blunt, isn't it? Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Where does knowledge begin? With God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I don't think the word foolish there is a denigrating term. I think it means, how can you help and not see it? If you can't, you're foolish. The whole point is, Elohim has life-giving power. The word for create is bahra, which means created out of nothing. It's a new thing that never before existed. It's only used by God in all of Scripture. He caused, created the world from nothing. It's not like an artist or a potter or a builder or a contractor who takes things that exist and creates something new out of it. God created out of nothing. Elohim said, let there be. And when he said, let there be, he spoke time out of eternity, existence out of non-existence, material out of immaterial. He spoke, and immediately there was sun and moon and light and stars and darkness and earth and plants and water and flowers and beasts. And this mighty act of Elohim brought our universe into existence. He he is the life giver, the only one who can create. Again, it's a confession of faith. This creation account is not written by a group of Israelites who were there watching creation happen. They didn't even yet exist, but they accepted it in faith because of their relationship with God. And what it meant to them was that certainly if God is saying He's going to take us into the promised land, we know He can because He's the God who's always been. He's the God who can create. He's the God who can give life. You see, it's a faith to be proclaimed, not proven. Remember what I said about Elohim, God, three in one? It's important for us to recognize that because the Scriptures go on to say that it was through Jesus Christ that God created the world. So we need to approach Genesis 1 from the eyes and experience of our faith. The Apostle John opens his Gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, Yet for, that, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. But then he goes on to say, There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And he brings it home in his letter to the Colossians, the first chapter. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created. By Jesus all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Elohim is there at the beginning of our lives, and he's there at the end, and everything that happens in our lives is held together by Jesus. Everyone who has thinking capabilities needs to make a choice. And there's only two choices. You believe that or you don't. But if you don't believe it, then you need to explain where everything came from. As I think I've said before from this pulpit, I love what someone else has said, the probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the probability of the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing factory. I saw another one this week. says pretty much the same thing. The probability of life originating from accident is comparable to an explosion in a metal factory resulting in a new car. In the beginning, Elohim created the entire creation in all of its vastness, in all of its mystery, can only be understood in relationship to Elohim. As I was wrestling with all of this, getting another one of those, those Charlie horses in my brain, a question came to my mind. Why did Elohim create? He had everything he needed. His was a perfect existence. So why did he create? He created because he had no one with whom to share his love. He created so he could share his love. It's true, isn't it? When we truly love someone or something, we can't help but share our love. We do some pretty amazing things when we're in love. Barb and I first met back in the summer of 1968 as staff members at Cran Hill, the first summer it was open. It's another whole story, which I won't go into at this time. But during that summer, I, I grew to love her. We came to the end of the summer, and I had returned for my sophomore year at Central College on Pella, Iowa, and Barb had to come back here to Kalamazoo to resume her job as a nurse at Bronson. But because I love her, I did some pretty amazing things I had never done before. I wrote her two or three, four letters a week. I never wrote my parents that much. But I wrote letters to her. This to sound silly to some of you younger people, but there were no cell phones. All you had was one phone in your hall in the dormitory. It was out in the public hallway. And so anytime you're on the phone, anybody coming by could say whatever they wanted or hear whatever they wanted. Or they could kind of, if it was a friend of yours, cause you all kinds of difficulty when you're trying to say sweet nothings to your girlfriend on the phone. And in order to make a call to her back here, I had to reverse the charges and promise to pay for them, which I don't think I ever did, did I? Probably in trouble now. I did silly things. I, I flew home standby. Any of you ever flown standby? You know how tense that can be. And then I would take a train loaded with college students returning after vacation to go to a small town in Iowa and had to have a friend come from the college to pick me up to get me there. And I took up a quarter of my desk with this big picture of Barb on it. I did all kinds of crazy, silly things. Because I was in love. Now, with that image in mind, let's go to Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. 
The Lord did not set His heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and He was keeping the oath He had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps His covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes His unfailing love on those who love Him and obey His commands. Now, I wonder how it would have gone over if the first time I said to Barb, I love you, I then added, you know, it's not because of your looks, it's not because of your personality or anything you've done, it's just because I've decided to love you. You should feel really good that I loved you. I have a sneaky feeling I would never have had a chance to say anything to her again. And yet, it sounds so right and good when Elohim says that. We are loved because He's decided to love us and nothing can break that love. We've been chosen because He decided to choose us. His love is not based on anything in us. He just loves us so much so that He created a world for us. It's not that He had this great idea, let me create a world, but He had us in mind and when He thought of us, He said they need a world in which they can relate to and come to know Me. Before the creation of the world, He had us in mind. He loves us enough that He made a world for us and He placed us in the world with free will to do as we would choose to do, even rebel and sin against Him. We get that from Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace He lavished upon us before the creation of the world. There's an old Dennis the Menace cartoon comic strip. Dennis is with his neighbor friend Joey, and they're leaving the Wilson's house with cookies in their hands. Dennis says, Mrs. Wilson gives you a cookie because she's nice, not because you're nice. Isn't that just like Elohim? We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We never will deserve it. But He loves us and accepts us anyway. Through the death of Jesus Christ, Elohim accepts us. It's really the story of a deep, deep love. He loves us not because we're lovely, but because He is love. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon was walking in the countryside one day and he came upon a weather vane. The weather vane was inscribed with the words, God is love. Curious, he went to the farmer and he said, you mean to say that God's love is fickle as the wind? The farmer said, oh no. I mean to say that no matter which way the wind blows, God loves us. Elohim created so he could share his love with us. So much so that he made us extensions of himself. 
we go back to Genesis later on in the first chapter. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. In the image of Elohim. Male and female, he created them. Second chapter of Genesis. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Whereas creation is a reflection of God, we are extensions of God. Remember Elohim 3 and 1? Let us make in our image. It's the Trinity again. We are made in the image and the likeness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Inside the band of my wedding ring, where a few words are engraved, taken from the vows that Barb and I made before each other and before God. John Calvin said, God engraved marks of himself on us to remind us of the vows that God made to be faithful in loving us and that he would make us be like him. In fact, the Hebrew word for image is derived from a word which means shadow. Isn't that a great connection? When the beams of light fall on something, there's immediately a shadow next to it. So according to the Hebrew wording, we are nothing less than the shadow likeness of Elohim because in many ways we reflect Elohim's perfection and beauty. Back in the Septuagint, the group of books that didn't quite make the Bible, which are filled with such divine wisdom, the Jewish sages translated the Hebrew word with the Greek word E-I-C-O-N. Sound familiar? It's where we get our English word icon. They were saying we are the icons, we are the emoticons, of God. We're all different. We look different. But through us, people see God. He created us with His words. He breathed Himself into us. We are not the result of some kind of random process. We're no accident. We are the crowning glory, says the psalmist in Psalm 8, of His creation. In Psalm 139, he says that He knit us each together in our mother's wombs. So whether we're tall and beautiful or small and not so handsome, whether our bodies function perfectly or are decrepit or deformed, we are still the crowning glory of the creation of Elohim. And as a result, we will always have inherent dignity, worth, and value. Our value and our worth and our identity come only from Him. So we can only know ourselves. We can only reach fulfillment. We can only be fully human in relationship with Elohim. If we are not in relationship with Him, then we're not human. What does it mean to be unhuman? It means to be out of relationship with the One who gives us life. And to live that way is to experience like the, the backwash on a lake shore. All the suds and the turmoil and the waste and the junk. That kind of connected life leads to depression, purposelessness, and insignificance. Because if there is no God in this world is all there is, then there is no purpose in life. There is no hope for a better future. And there is no joy in this life other than a few fleeting pleasures. If we reject our Maker, we reject our very essence and the core of our being. That's why, according to the psalmist, we long for God. Psalm 42, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. 
I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before Him? I often say to somebody, Hi, I am Curry Pickard. Do you ever stop and think about every time we say I am, we connect ourselves to the great I am? Every time I say I am, it's a reminder to me that I am not my own, but I belong to Him and I am connected with Him. It's not me, but Christ in me. Paul in Romans 14.8 wrote, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. Being connected to the I am means we have a purpose for living. Colossians 1.16 All things were created through Jesus and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, that in everything He might be preeminent. The ultimate purpose of our lives is to bring Elohim glory and honor through Jesus Christ. That's why He breathed into us the breath of His life and knit us together in our mother's womb and gave us each a unique gift of, of mix, a unique mix of gifts and talents and abilities. What if? What if we saw our bodies or our education, our jobs, our hobbies, or our friendships as arenas through which to glorify God? What if we saw our families as the channels through which to glorify Elohim? What would that look like? It might just look like Jesus. John 13, on the night he was betrayed, we read, Jesus knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Knowing where he was from, knowing where he was going, knowing who and whose he was, he was free, even in the face of death, to serve others. It might look like Egyptian Christians, Renia and her daughter Myra, who every weekend on Saturday prepare up to 900 sandwiches in their little home with funds from the Barnabas ministry. And then on Sunday, Rainia and her husband deliver the sandwich-based meals to six Cairo churches to feed the Sudanese refugees for whom it may be their only meal of the day. See, here's the point of it all. We must come to grips with Elohim in every situation of life. Every event and circumstance of our lives must be brought into the perspective of faith. Life begins and ends with Him. And so here's question one for you this morning. Knowing God is the beginning and end of life, what are you doing with your life? Knowing who and whose you are, what have you done what are you doing with your body, your time, your talents, your gifts, your families, your relationships? What are you doing with your life? Every time I see an ad on television for a self-driving car, I say to Barb, you know, I just don't think I could trust leaving the driving to the car's mechanics and instincts. Could you? 
deeper yet, I wonder, are you willing to take your hands off your steering wheel of life and let Elohim drive your life? Elohim longs for you to come and trust him. Let me read again from the end of that passage in Isaiah. How can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak, strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in their exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And Jesus longs for you to come and trust Him. That key verse we had in our previous series from Matthew 11, Come to Me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. Let Me teach you because I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. And the Scriptures end. Our Bible ends with an invitation to come and trust. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears this say, Come. Let anyone who is thirsty, Come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life, Come. In a few moments, our communion will call us to Come. Elohim is faithful. You can trust Him. I originally had two or three possible endings for this sermon. Bob and I were having lunch earlier in the week. And the Spirit popped into my head a song that I had sung so many times years ago and had totally forgotten about that I think so speaks to our thoughts this morning written by Ralph Carmichael, and it goes like this. In the stars, his handiwork I see. On the wind he speaks with majesty, though he ruleth over land and sea. What is that to me? I will celebrate nativity, for it has a place in history. Sure, he came to set his people free. What is that to me? Till by faith I met him face to face, and I felt the wonder of his grace. Then I knew that, that he was more than just a God who didn't care, that lived away out there, and, and now he walks beside me day by day, ever watching o'er me lest I stray, helping me to find that narrow way. He's everything to me. Is Elohim everything to you? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for inviting us to come to you. To whom else can we go? Today, around the world, you are inviting your people to come as we celebrate together. We come to the table anticipating your work in us. 
trusting you. For you desire to be our everything. So may it be through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.